Well, here we are. And by the time you all are listening to this, Hannah and I once more will be IRL friends. This is Well, Here We Are, a podcast which explores the ways pop culture and the humanities matter for our daily lives by distilling relevant, interesting, and sometimes extremely niche topics into lists of three-ish things. On June 2nd, 2021, so almost two years ago, we released an episode about the 1619 Project, a New York Times essay series and podcast spearheaded by journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who I sometimes call Hannah Nicole Jones, and for that I apologize. I'm probably going to do it again. We are revisiting the 1619 Project in this episode through the Hulu docuseries of the same name. I'm Hannah. And I'm Suzanne. And you're coming here to New York, where I live, to visit me, to be IRL friends. To be real-life friends. Yeah. And we haven't seen each other in almost two years. Yes. Just and the the same length of time as <laughs> when we did the 1690 Project. And also, I mean, our two years ago IRL friendship was great, but it was also very short. It was short, yeah. And we hadn't seen each other in, like, over a year. There was, like, that always that, like, a... Uh, new kindergartners in a group of students <laughs> energy. <laughs> so I'm excited to like bust the windows out of that and just get to like really hang out and spend some good time together. Yeah. And have it not be during lockdown. We can do whatever we want. Just go skipping through the city, holding hands. Drinking rosé. Singing. Drinking rosé. Singing la 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 la. Uh, it's been a while since we've reminded you, but we do have social medias and we do also have a website. And at time of recording, those things are not updated, but it's my job to update them and I'm going to update them. And then you can look at them. And it's so exciting. I have never once updated my profile on That's the website. That's true. It still says lies. It still says, I think <laughs> it still I'm... says your favorite author is Nicholas Sparks. And that I'm from Iceland, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia. Yes. Yeah. And if you do visit our website to see the lies that I wrote about Suzanne, you can also donate us some dollars so that we can have future IRL friendship time or just buy better microphones. Originally, our idea for this episode is because we are watching a docu-series on Hulu, we thought that we were going to approach this like we have other streamer skip episodes where we watch it, discuss the pros and cons, things we liked, things we did, things we didn't, and then make a recommendation about it at the end of the episode. But as we we actually sat down to record this two weeks ago, I think. And then as we discussed that format and structure, we thought it would actually be a better use of your time and our time for us to try to do a little bit of what the 1619 Project does so well, which is ground these larger topics about systemic racism in very specific examples that are localized to where Hannah and I are and to our background. Because I think that's part of what makes the 1619 Project so powerful is how how connected it is to story and it it localizes those stories. So we each developed a case study essentially that is inspired by where we are from. And that's what we're sharing with you today. But if you were wondering whether you should stream or skip 1619 Project, just go and watch it. We didn't we didn't feel the need to belabor 
that point. Just just watch it. It's on Hulu. It's great. Super easy to watch. It has a 93% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and 4.2 out of 10 stars on IMDb, which is crazy. I recently watched one of the worst movies I've ever seen, and it had like 5.6 on IMDb. So please watch the show and then go rank it on IMDb so it doesn't have a 4.2 rating. Thank you so much. Our uh, two-ish things for today are I'm going to be discussing the use of incarcerated labor to build railroads in Western North Carolina. And Suzanne, you are going to be talking about the use of racial restrictive covenants in Seattle housing. And I don't know what that is. I'm so excited to learn about it. I'm very excited to learn about your topic and also preemptively sad. Yes, it is very sad. And I am very angry, but also... It was very interesting to learn about. (laughs) All right. Well, with that self-transition, do you want to bring us into your case study? I would love to. Thank you for furthering my transition. Um, I also, I, I have to thank friend of the pod, Lucy, who, when I told her we were talking about the 1619 project, she told me about this, um, sort of course that she's doing about racism in North Carolina. And she sent me like the syllabus and some of the sources from the course. And I also learned a lot from that. So thank you, Lucy. Um, well, being from North Carolina, I just felt like there were so many options, I, I decided that I didn't really want to talk about slavery because we all like know the the basic ins and outs of slavery. And I wanted to bring a new story. But I will say that, or new to me story. I will say that during the course of my research, I, I learned a lot about slavery in my region. We were We were kind of taught in North Carolina history that North Carolina was a poor state and we didn't have nearly as many slaves as um, as South Carolina and Virginia, which I think is true. And I also come from the western part of the state, which was super poor in comparison to the other parts of this of the state. So I always just kind of gave myself this pass of thinking like enslavement wasn't that big of an issue where I come from. So this isn't a thing that I need to worry about, which was very lazy. And I am really ashamed of myself for thinking that. But during the course of this research, I looked at some records of slave slave sales in Western North Carolina, and all these names started popping up of like streets and cities and monuments that I was like, oh, that that's who that that person is. An enslaver. He was was an enslaver. Some random. Just thought it was a guy, like a, a white guy. No, he he was an enslaver. He and his family. Am I to presume, and I think you kind of just touched on this, in comparison to other Southern states, the relatively low numbers of enslaved people in North Carolina, it doesn't sound like that came from some sort of like higher moral mindset that they were like. I don't, I don't think so, Suzanne. Okay. Although I did hear someone recently on a podcast say some stuff. A lot of Western North Carolina was settled by Scots Irish. One of the stories that I heard recently was that a lot of them, when they came in and settled, when the Civil War came in, they were like, well, we kind of like the Union. That's why we came here. And so we don't feel the need to fight for the Confederacy because we we like 
the United States. But even so, that's not about slavery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My and the case study I'm going to share is like very different from yours. But one of the things that that I'm coming up against because I'm talking about real estate is when I'm reading these articles about real estate in Seattle in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, all these like real estate companies that are actually pretty well known today were in existence at that time. And so I'm like, oh, Windermere wasn't just started by a venture capitalist 10 years ago. That was a player in like housing segregation in the 1930s. And so now, and, and like there was, I had actually read that there was like a real estate code of ethics that said it was against the realtor's code of ethics to introduce unwanted people into a neighborhood. Like, oh, okay. All don't right. don't help desegregate a neighborhood because to do that is unethical. Oh my God. Um, and I'm like, do I have to kick every John L. Scott in Windermere sign that I see when I walk by? Oh, yeah. William Boeing apparently was heavy yeah. into like housing segregation. And I was yeah. like, I'm about to fly on a Boeing plane to come and see you. Yikes. <laughs> That's cool. Like these that names. That doesn't make me feel good. I know. These planes are just like everywhere. Like these names are just everywhere. And we just have to like deal with these these people. This makes me feel great. <laughs> Still sad, but it's going to get worse. So yeah, so I decided not to talk about slavery. So I got vaguely a couple months past the end of the Civil War. And I was like, oh, here's some also very bad stuff. And so I'm going to talk about that stuff, which is incarcerated labor. Do you know what what can you tell me about incarcerated labor? What does that mean to you? Incarcerated labor. Are you talking about like in the time period you're kind of speaking about or in general? Just in general. Just just what do you what do you know? The majority of what I know comes from Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th, which Oh, yes, which I highly recommend. It's on Netflix. It's yeah. great. It's very sad, but very great. And that is is a documentary about the use of uh, – or kind of about, like, mass incarceration and mm-hmm. the incarceration system in the U.S., but there's, like, a big portion of it that's about the use of incarcerated labor. And then I heard, like, a couple of little stories, like how Victoria's Secret used to use, like, incarcerated labor for the production of, like, their lingerie and how that was like a big PR kerfluffle. Oh, and when the forest fires happen, whenever there's a big forest fire, there's a big discussion over the use of incarcerated labor to fight forest fires because that's that's like – but then they don't have the same rights and like health benefits and Mm -hmm. follow-up care that firefighters have. We're going to come back to that point. I didn't know that about Victoria's Secret, so I'm going to have to continue to not patronize their store. Yeah, you're going to continue to not buy garments. I'm going to continue that, to boycott. Yeah, yeah, you're going to continue to not have the word pink written across your butt. Uh, yeah, I prefer not to, but, well, you know a lot more than than I used to. I used to know nothing because the 13th Amendment, as I taught it, as I learned it, was like the thing that abol- abolished slavery. Mm-hmm. And we were like, "Yay, no more slavery." That is not. That's not all the Thirteenth Amendment does. 
I'm going to read the text. The 13th Amendment was passed in uh, December of 1865, so just a couple months after the end of the Civil War. Section 1 reads, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their, their jurisdiction. So that little that little clause in the middle, except as punishment for a crime, I just don't think I don't think I learned about that. And it's a pretty important little little loophole. So at the at the end of the Civil War, slavery was abolished and that completely wrecked the Southern economy. But because there's that loophole, the states found that they could force labor from anyone convicted of a crime. So they were like, why don't we just start convicting people of crimes so we can get that labor for free? Who can we convict of crimes? And it it didn't even take them like... <laughs> like not even a whole year. It took them like no time to make that yeah. connection. Cool. Yeah. That's great. If, if I had done a little bit more research about like the history of this amendment, I kind of wonder if they put that in on purpose, but I can't, I can't speak to that right now. It feels like something that happened on purpose. Yeah, it doesn't seem like, whoops, the daisies, we built a loophole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in southern states, they started convicting black people of crimes just so they could get this labor for free. They could continue to get this free labor. So basically what would happen was that private companies would would rent, and I'm using like scare quotes, they would rent imprisoned people, mostly men, sometimes women, mostly men from state penitentiaries. So they would pay the state government. And then they would also pay for things that I guess you could call room and board. But let's be honest, we're living in like, they they were living in absolutely terrible conditions. Like they'd be sleeping in boxcars or something. So they would bring them away from the prison and be working on these other projects. And I think that's one difference between we we do still have this loophole in the 13th Amendment, like as you alluded to, Victoria's Secret and I guess who else still uses, do they still call it convict leasing or they call it something else? I don't know. They probably have some sort of euphemistic dystopian nightmare yeah. phrase to explain, <laughs> to explain it. Yeah, yeah. So, but I guess one of the big differences here was that they would bring them away from the penitentiaries. I I use the phrase incarcerated labor because I learned a lot about this from an Asheville public radio program that we will link on the website when we update that. And the researcher that they had on to talk about this used that term incarcerated labor rather than convict labor, which you'll hear more often because he's so-called crimes that these men were convicted of were things like loitering or vagrancy, which white white people are not going to be accused of these things. They're just not. And also during Reconstruction, there were a lot of laws passed in Southern states that would do things like restrict travel for Black people or, or some other bullshit <laughs> that they would just be convicted of. So to call them convicts, it's just not it's not really fair. These these are programs that are specifically designed to re-enslave black people. They they're not crimes. I used to have this idea that incarcerated labor was was basically slavery by another name, but in some ways in some ways it's worse because at least one thing you can say for enslavement is that enslavers would have some kind of motivation to keep their enslaved population alive and able to work in most cases. 
And the same cannot be said of incarcerated labor. These private companies really didn't have much of a motivation to keep these men alive or in good health because as they saw it, there's this potentially limitless supply of them. They're paying like nominal fees. They're not paying a lot for this labor. Yeah, so I I was interested in the use of incarcerated labor in the Western North Carolina Railroad in part because I'm from Western North Carolina and I used to like go, we used to go play on this railroad. And when I learned that it was built using incarcerated labor, it was just, um, you know, horrifying. Can you help me understand like your realization timeline like a little bit? Like is, I know that going in depth to discussions of incarcerated labor is a little bit newer to you, but was there a moment that predates that where you learned how the railroads were constructed? Yes. I actually learned a couple of years ago. I remember going in this like Wikipedia spiral about, I think, just like areas around my hometown that I was just like clicking on the links and learning some things. Mm-hmm. And I learned at that time that portion of the railroad, the the part that's like closest to my house, not closest to my house, but the part that's like in my immediate area was built using incarcerated labor. And it it surprised me and upset me, but I don't think I did like a deeper dive at that time. And so when we when we decided to do this podcast, I remembered that and I I like learning about this as a as like a wider problem that it wasn't just thing like in my head, it was just like they built a railroad up the one mountain. Mm -hmm. I learned during this this process that that's not it. That's not what happened. They built the whole railway system that made Western North Carolina like a thing. (laughs) Just a real a real upsetting thing to learn but also like really important to learn because of this the system of like institutional forgetting that i think we have mm-hmm. we like we allow these things to happen and then we just move on and unless somebody cares and somebody goes digging like the um the people on the the people on the radio <laughs> that i listen to we just don't choose to remember it we don't choose to acknowledge it the Western North Carolina Railroad was one of the most important, if not the most important infrastructure projects in Western North Carolina until this railroad. The, the idea from the railroad had already existed before the 1870s, which was when it was begun. But before the railroad existed, there just wasn't much infrastructure to speak of in the western part of the state. There's like dirt roads and th- those aren't very reliable. They they don't have like bridges and good good roads. And Western North Carolina is very mountainous. This railroad project was a huge challenge, but it was seen as very important to bring mostly to bring the goods from the ports of North Carolina, which is where most of the wealth was. They wanted to bring all those goods to the western part of the state and then to like Tennessee and beyond, sort of the what they thought of as the frontier at that time. It was primarily important at the time to expand the wealth of the eastern part of the state where the wealth was concentrated but it also brought huge like population boom to the western part of the state like Asheville I think like quadrupled in size after the railroad was finished in the in the 
10 years after the railroad was finished, the city quadrupled in size. And probably so it didn't was, have the infrastructure to completely support quadruple people. Yeah, <laughs> also true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and they they used incarcerated labor to build this like the entire railroad system. And as you can imagine, it was a very dangerous project. So, like building railroad on mountains in the 1870s was rough. It was very difficult. It was very demanding physical labor. They were living in terrible conditions, as I alluded to before. And just like the basic work of building the railroad could cause sickness, like. Like if you imagine sort of tunneling through through mountains, you could get like all the the particles and stuff in your lungs that would cause diseases. Do you know who John Henry is? Just out of curiosity. I don't think so. He's this like, I don't know, like folk legend. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got him. So I also learned during this uh, research that he's based on a real person. So John Henry is this, like in my mind like gigantic black man and in the uh kind of folk folk legends he is really good at um like hammering through mountains and like helping build railroads faster than a machine could do it and that's why he was this big hero because oh yeah there was that cartoon where he's racing a machine yes to see who could build the railroad faster yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah and then he he in the legend like dies at the end because he had been working so hard but i learned that he is probably based on a real man who was incarcerated and did die of um probably like lung disease from the little particles oh my gosh and then we just like make him a cartoon right right that is like then followed by the cartoon about Paul Bunyan and his big blue eyes. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's also like I I forgot to mention, but the one of the the ways that I kind of learned about incarcerated labor, not learned about, but the ways that entered my brain was was from like cartoons. Mm-hmm. And I watched this. I watched a Mickey Mouse cartoon from 1930 that was called The Chain Gang, and it was like Mickey and Pluto and all their little friends. In their like little black and white striped outfits, breaking rocks as convicts, it was so upsetting to watch this like children's cartoon. And I think I saw like a Bugs Bunny one once, and I have have a very specific memory of a cartoon wolf. If someone can let me know what this is, I do not know what wolf. I feel like it's like a Looney Tune. I don't know. You know what's funny is that when you said cartoons that show chain gangs, I was like, I think, yeah, there was the one with like a a wolf and he wore like the black and white striped. Yes. What is that? And he had like the literal chain with the ball around his ankle. Yes. The ball, the ball and the chain. What is that? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) All these cartoons that would just make light of this human rights violation, to say the least. What was this period of time that the railroad was built? Um, The Western North Carolina Railroad was built between like 1875-ish, and they finished it in 1870, uh, sorry, 1891-ish. Okay, so let's say you're a man who was incarcerated because you were standing up against a building where you weren't supposed to be standing. 
You've mm-hmm. been thrown into prison. You have been worked without any care or consideration for your body or your well-being. You, by some miracle, make it through that and you get out of prison. And 40 years later, you're watching a Mickey Mouse cartoon yeah. that is showing the same thing happening. Just complete dehumanization. Yeah. Good heavens. One of the biggest challenges in building the railroad was crossing this area called the Swananoa Gap, which I'm sure if any of my hometown buds are listening, y'all know what I'm talking about. This was one of the reasons that they hadn't been successful in building the railroad before, just because like the steepness and the kind of like shapes of the mountain made it very difficult. So they decided to make a nine mile tunnel using nitroglycerin. And as you can imagine, Suzanne, there weren't a lot of safety precautions or regulations or training. At least 139 men died during just this phase of the building. And that's just the the men that we know of. And this was also in addition to the 300 plus men that we know died in other parts of the construction project. These are only the documented deaths. And then when they died, they were buried in unmarked graves next to the railroad. And here's and here's the thing. Like this is one, this was like one of the most poignant parts of the 1619 series for me was when Nicole Hannah Jones is, I forget which episode it's in, but she's meeting with a scholar. The scholar is showing her the records of enslavers and the people that they had enslaved on their property. You can see Nicole Hannah-Jones get really emotional and is really affected by this because these are meticulous records Mm -hmm. that shows a person's – the monetary value of their life when they came onto an enslaved – on an enslaver's plantation and what it is like a year later. There's names. There's ages. There's height wait, these are incredibly detailed records. And so the fact that like these men were were thrown in unmarked graves, nameless, it's not because people lacked the capacity to keep the record of that. It's it's that the plantation owners did that because it was their investment. They were invested in keeping meticulous records. In this, like, new stage of, like, post-Civil War, like, emancipation, there was no financial incentive to keep a record of who these people were. I don't know. I don't even know what the word for that is. Like, I don't I don't have a word for that. Again, like, this casual dehumanization that they just don't even care, which, again, is, is not sufficient. But I'm going to send you um, a little clip to read. This is from a newspaper. This is from the Asheville Weekly Citizen. This is published on May 9th, 1878. And I would like you to read that, please. On the line of the Western North Carolina, is that RR Railroad? Uh, Yes, I think so. On the line of the Western North Carolina Railroad towards Asheville from the tunnel, three stockades are to be built for convicts and 700 are to be sent immediately. The supply of convicts at the penitentiary is not sufficient, and word will be sent out to the prosecuting officers to bring before the courts a larger number of offenders. Yeah. It's just, like, not a secret. It's just, like... Right. Yeah. No, it's completely transparent. It's just blatant. 
they just need more bodies to finish this. This is what's going on with the railroad. We have to prosecute more anonymous bodies. My guess would be that no consideration or time has been given to how long these men's original sentences were, when they've completed their sentences, when they are able to be freed from from like this labor, when they can go home. No consideration given to how they're going to get home. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about that. They um I think that they were often for these punishments, they were it was often like a three to five year sentence. But I think so many of them died during the process. In one of the articles that I read from the Bitter Southerner, which I really recommend, it's a, this great blog. It says, many so-called convict laborers were forcibly worked to death. Some died of sickness, others in accidents. Guards killed workers too. A representative legend endures. Two brothers walked away and ignored warnings to turn back, essentially accepting death over continuing to work in chains. I mean, I just don't, I don't know what else to say other than... Yeah. That this is the labor that helped create Western North Carolina as as a as a place where where people live and where people live their lives and go to school and have their businesses and their stores and their churches. And from your perspective, is it really truly like forgotten? For like, is it truly forgotten history? Is there any attempt to try to reclaim this part of history to memorialize it in any way? Thank you so much for asking us again. <laughs> one, of, one of the ways that I learned about this was, as I said, on that on that local radio program. And the professor who they had on to talk about it is really involved with the, it's called the Rail Project. And they, they've been raising money and kind of awareness to build a monument to the men who have died and also to help try and find some of these unmarked graves. And also to bring awareness to the fact that these are the people who built our our homes, basically. That that it, maybe it was like the vision of the governor and these private businessmen, and you know, blah blah blah. But like these were the men who did it. I believe that they have built already the first monument, but they they're still they're still donating. They're still donating. They're still raising money. Uh, to build another one and to try and find some more of the names of the of the men. I should also say this is a really unpleasant thing that I learned. There are some men whose names were recorded, just a small a small minority, because in 1880 there was a census. They wanted to inflate the numbers of the population. So that they could get better representation in the state legislatures, et cetera. So they included all of the incarcerated railroad workers on the census. And so that's why we know these like 180 names, because they were trying to game the system. It's not the worst part, but it's just like... But they also could but they couldn't vote. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Ugh. I know. I am, I am going to donate to this. I am going to post on the website in case somebody else wants to donate. It would be really great if oh, if we could get like some more recognition that things like this happen, not just in Western North Carolina, but probably in a lot of places. So for you, as somebody who like doesn't live in North Carolina anymore, but that's like so much of who you are is connected to this place. 
like how do you exist <laughs> with this kind of knowledge of your of your history? How does it change the way you think you're going to move and kind of I don't know, experience the state that you're from? Yeah, it pretty much blew up how I feel about about like my home, my hometown and my home region just because it has been I mean, in my opinion, intentionally forgotten, erased. The place that I call home just like wouldn't exist in the way that I know it without this railroad and the railroad wouldn't exist without incarcerated labor of Black men. Yeah, it definitely is going to change the way I feel. But I also, I feel like all we can do is move forward. All we can do is do our best to to move forward. Yeah. And um, with projects like this, and I'm sure other other projects as well, similar projects like is, you know, a start, a start to moving forward. In my opinion, it's the most powerful thing about the 1619 project is how specific it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like we're not going to talk about slavery. We're going to talk about the way slavery has impacted this one family. You know, as a culture, I think just as people, you're very drawn to story. But there's something about specificity i think that makes it harder to look a- to look away from absolutely and yeah I, like i was thinking about this because like one of the articles that i read for my case study that i'm going to share is talking about a restaurant that existed in seattle in like the 30s and 40s i've lived in seattle for a long time for about 5 years all the places I lived were like within three blocks of this like rundown Chinese restaurant that was like a drive through Chinese restaurant. For a couple of years, it was like out of business while I was there. It's now like a really cool, like, I don't know what you call it. It's not a, it's like a hop shop, basically. Like you can bring your growlers there and get them filled and there's food mm-hmm. trucks and stuff. Like it's a really cool, just like hangout spot. And it used to be a restaurant called the Coon Chicken Inn. Oh, (laughs) that was, oh my gosh, it's so terrible. All of the advertising was like the most racist caricature of like a man that you could possibly, of a black man that you could possibly envision. And like you actually, the entrance to the building was a giant sculpture of this like caricature of a black man's face that you had to like walk through to get into this restaurant. And there's something about the specificity of those details and knowing that I've like walked on that specific land. And I used to, that I I have looked at that specific site hundreds of, if not thousands of times that just like grips you by the stomach. Like that and the and the cartoons and stuff, it's just like makes this total mockery of, I mean, everything that we have talked about and we'll talk about, I'm sure, like the suffering and the exploitation mm-hmm. is as if that is nothing. Yeah. Um, there's a, a photograph of these um, incarcerated men who were working on this tunnel, on the Swananoa Tunnel. And I think that I had actually seen this photograph before and not realizing that that's where it was. Mm-hmm. But in the in the 1880s, a postcard was produced of that photograph with like a little joke on it. It's almost not even the fact that these people died to to make this railroad and to make the economy and 
and all these things, but that now we're going to make light of it and we're going to make it a joke. It's just, it's beyond insulting. I feel like I could just talk to you about this specific case study for like all eternity. Well, let's not talk about it for all eternity. Let's talk about another sad thing. (laughs) Let's talk about your case study. What I decided to research for this was the use of racial restrictive housing covenants in Seattle housing and Washington state housing in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, So I went ahead and sent you a photo if you want to kind of describe for us what what you are seeing in that photo. It looks like an advertisement for a future development, I'm assuming, of like a real estate area. Like mm-hmm. there's this beautiful greenery and a lake maybe. Is that what that is? Yeah. Lots and of water in the Northwest around yeah. expensive housing. I believe I've heard that. And some mountains or clouds. And there's a sign in the front that says Ennis Arden, a restricted residential community. Yeah. Um, and if it looks you, idyllic. It looks <laughs> idyllic. Uh, yeah. And you're totally right. That's from a brochure. There's a town just north of Seattle. So the border of Seattle is the street 145th. 146th is Shoreline. 144th is Seattle. So it's it's like mm, okay. our – it's just – north of us. Innis Arden is now a part of Shoreline, so just north of Seattle. Uh, um, okay. I'm sending you now an advertisement for another community. And if you could kind of tell us what's going on in this advertisement. Okay. It's in very old-timey um, New York, not New York, newspaper font. There's sailboats on a lake under a mountain. Again, looks very idyllic. Golf and Country Club District is Seattle's most popular community because, and then lists all these things. Oh, I see one of the reasons is restrictions. Yeah, you want to go ahead and read the text that's oh, there. Oh, okay, yes. Your home and family protected from undesirable encroachments. Wow. All homes are new homes. They will not be polluted by former inhabitants or ghosts. It doesn't say that. That's just my... <laughs> Your interpretation? <laughs> my interpretation. I, I had a second where I was like, did it talk about ghosts on this <laughs> No, that's just my constant fear. Roy Winslick, president of Real Estate Analyst Inc., says, quote, all caps, shouting, buy in a developing district, buy in a restricted neighborhood. They maintain their value much longer. Okay. All right. I see what's happening here. Restricted communities, both what Innis Arden was advertising itself to be and what this development in View Ridge uh, was advertising itself to be, were communities in Seattle and, again, all of Washington State. And I found an article, actually, that is talking about the same practice in Portland, Oregon. These were communities um, that barred most, if not all, non-white citizens from purchasing land or property in these neighborhoods. This was a practice that was very common in the 20s, 30s, and 40s as Seattle expanded and developed and kind of expanded their like their blueprint across the city. Uh, I'd, I'd also, I just, this, this isn't related, but I just want to say it. Prices, being the fastest developing district in the Northwest, is a monument to the fair and reasonable prices. $450 to $950. What is that for? $450? Uh, I think it's the land. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry. That's shocking. Also shocking. I think that one is from 1939, I think. So, 
Yeah. Very different economic uh, climate, even if you account yeah. for inflation. Uh, but yeah, I, wow. I first became aware of of racial restrictive covenants back, I think, in like 2016 or 17. I was working at a university and I attended a workshop that was hosted by, at the time, the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion. She was later I think the memo said that they decided to go their separate ways. SPU, the university I used to work at, has not rehired that position, nor do I think they have any plans to. Shocking. Uh, shocking. Uh, so I first heard of this practice through a workshop that that her name was Dr. Sandra Mayo that she led, where she talked about her and her husband moving to West Seattle. And when they bought their house in West Seattle, this was like 2014 when she came to the university, her real estate agent had to point out that there was language on the on the property deed that stated that non-white residents were not permitted to live on that land. And so the real estate agent said, of course, this is not enforceable, but this is a part of the property record of the house that you are moving into. And Dr. Mayo is a Black woman, and she kind of talked about this very disorienting experience of purchasing a home that was on land that Mm -hmm. 40 years prior she would have not been permitted to live on. And at the time, there wasn't really a way for property owners to get this language detached from their deed. And that was that was going to be my question. Like, I just don't understand why they don't strike it from the from the record. Yeah. So there is a process now that's a little bit easier for homeowners to do that. But at the time, there wasn't really a mechanism in place to allow homeowners to strike that language from their deed. In twenty in 2017, I believed there was a state house bill that was passed that set up a process of how you can get that language removed from your deed. But yeah, it was just there kind of like in perpetuity. And real estate agents would have to point this out to people that were that were buying homes. Hmm. That first image that I sent you of the Innis Arden sign, a restricted residential community, uh, that was a brochure from the 1940s. This language, the language that was actually that we now see was attached to the property, to the land that was being built on, stated no property in said addition shall at any time be sold, conveyed, rented, or leased in whole or in any part to any person or persons not of the white or Caucasian race. Wow. No person other than one of the white or Caucasian race shall be permitted to occupy any property in said addition or portion thereof or building thereon except a domestic servant actually employed by a person of the white or Caucasian race where the latter is an occupant of such property. You can't see me, but I'm grimacing. Yeah, it's not great. And Innis Arden was actually land that was owned by the Boeings, so of the Boeing Corporation. Uh, So that was his land. It was a part of his family's investment. And when they were expanding Seattle, he was expanding it in a way that was purposefully designed to exclude non-white people from that development. Uh, And I, I, I think one of the things that is that is interesting is like this. This isn't 
very long ago, right? Right. This is uh, some of these new housing covenants. Um, I'll be talking a little bit more about the project that that is doing some of this work. They found new property listings that had these covenants from like the late 1950s. So, so that's like 60 years ago that this was still being built into. Like well within living memory. Well within living memory. In 1964, Seattle City Council brought a a vote to the people to decide if they wanted to remove all racial restrictive housing barriers. And that was voted down at almost two to one. Wow. And by the Seattle people that were voting. And that was in 1964. There are people alive today that probably voted no on removing racial restrictive covenant language that are still living in Seattle today. It's another thing that's like, they remember that. Mm -hmm. Because when when we talk about things like, like redlining or these things that like seem to kind of exist in the historical like abstract a little bit to me, because I'm like, well, we don't do that anymore. And I just, like, pat myself on the back and move on. But, like, they remember that. Yeah. And they make the decision to kind of, I I guess, bury it or not talk about it, forget it actively. This is something I I was also thinking about when I have been doing all this reading about about Asheville that I think Seattle and Asheville have in common is that we just – we tend to pat ourselves in the back and say, like, we're not like other places. Mm Mm-hmm. People in Asheville consider themselves to be, like, very liberal, very woo-woo and, like, hippie and uh, progressive and all these things. But we still have this terrible history, and we still have, like, active racism happening there now. I'm sure the same is true of Seattle, that it's, it is baked into the history of the city. But if we don't acknowledge the things of the past, like, how are we ever going to talk about the present? It's not like, and I'm going to get into like when some of these laws changed in just a second, but it's not like the laws changed and this problem went away. Right. Yeah. That second advertisement I sent you with the old timey font, that was for the neighborhood View Ridge. And View Ridge and Wedgwood are in North Seattle. North Seattle is probably the part of Seattle that is still to this day the most heavily segregated kind of part of Seattle. It's also the part of Seattle where I lived most of my time in Seattle, where most of my friends live. Most of us mm. live in North Seattle. According to the 2020 census, the the tracts of land that contains most of those two neighborhoods, View Ridge and Walling and uh, Wedgwood, they counted 54 black residents in a population of almost 6,000 people. Holy crap. And... <laughs> That people of Asian, Latinx, indigenous, and mixed backgrounds were around 1,600, but that that white people made up 73% of the mm-hmm. census tract of those two neighborhoods. Yeah. And this is actually like an improvement um, from the 1970s when that tricked, tract was almost 98% white. But that is like still kind of the story of Seattle today, and especially of North Seattle. So Wedgwood, one of those neighborhoods, did issue in September of 2020 an apology on behalf of their, like, neighborhood council and actually the real estate council in Wedgwood for their – the role that they played in segregating that neighborhood. But it's, it's real slow to change. 
where a lot of this information that I'm sharing comes from is there's actually two projects that came out of the University of Washington uh, that that is doing a lot of this work. The first is the Seattle Civil Rights and Labor Project. Uh, that is a UW initiative. And it actually started in like 2005. It reminds me a lot of the 1619 Project. And then from that, like a part of what they did was they did an essay on these racial restrictive covenants. And that sparked a new project called the Racial Restrictive Covenants Project that is actually going through all the deed records they can find. It started in Seattle and has expanded to other parts of the state where they're trying to log these racial restrictive covenants. Um, And I actually, I sent you a map that shows some of this work. Oh, oh. Yeah, so what are you seeing on this map? I'm seeing a map of of what I take to be, oh, yep, Seattle. And it's got a lot of red circles on it, like a lot, and some yellow circles. Yeah, so Um, go for it. And there's like the the little circles and the medium circles and the big circles, which I take to be like indicative of um, population size, maybe? So if you were to zoom in on those big circles, it would have Mm -hmm. much smaller dots. And those much smaller dots, you can click on them and you can read the actual language of the racial restrictive covenants that are on those plots of land. Wow. So anywhere there are red dots is where they have found deeds for either subdivisions or deeds for individual parcels of land that have racial restrictive covenants in the language. Mm-hmm. And anywhere there's a yellow dot is a place where they found a newspaper advertisement advertising a racially restricted community, but they haven't yet been able to find deeds that had it uh, listed on the property record. Wow, what a great project. I, it, like, I'm I'm a visual learner, and so to be able to look at this map and be like, oh, uh-huh, yep, I see what's going on in North Seattle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got yeah. it. Yeah, and and one of the things that's interesting is you'll notice on that map that there are parts of that map that don't have as many dots. And so yes. it would be easy to tell or yourself any. or any dots. And it would be easy to tell yourself a story about what's going on there. Uh what's actually going on there is that it was actually a lot easier to add racial restrictive covenants to new developments mm, because okay. you could build it into the land deed. Yeah. The older neighborhoods had to do a different process in order to get racial restrictive covenants added to their property records. And that was they had to start a petition campaign uh, where they would collect signatures of neighborhoods asking for people to say that they wanted to restrict their neighborhood to only white people. Ah, so do those records also still exist? Like, can we go look at, at who signed them? Yeah. So Capitol Hill is actually one of the most famous neighborhoods that did this. Capitol Hill is now kind of the home of the queer community in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And I think in 1947, there was a petition campaign started by residents of Capitol Hill to add this racial restrictive covenant almost as like a pact 
for this community um, to say we will none of us will ever sell our homes to people that are not of the white race. Unlike the ones that are built into the development of land, those had a time lapse. So Mm. that lapsed after 21 years. And when they tried to renew it in 1968, it failed to be renewed by the neighborhood, which is you're like, okay, a sign of a sign of some progress. But not all neighborhoods did that. Some neighborhoods in Seattle, Green Lake, Wallingford, which is another neighborhood I lived in for a time, they were essentially kind of treated by Black people and were enforced by police officers and neighborhoods as being almost essentially like sundown neighborhoods for Black people in Seattle. So it was very clear that this was like a hostile environment for Black residents, and they were encouraged by other Black men and women, their neighbors, their communities to not be in these neighborhoods after sundown um, because there was very intense policing. There was very intense, like, scrutiny by neighbors. So some of these, because of social restrictions, because of social contracts, didn't even need to really put the language into place to enforce these things because it was just very well understood that this was not a place where anyone that it was not white would be welcome. Wow. And the other thing, too, I'm not sure if you were planning to talk about this, but one of the points that um, that the 1619 Project docuseries makes is that, yes, the racism that's like being put into the, the contracts is a clear problem, but the real estate isn't only about real estate. Mm-hmm. It's about building intergenerational wealth. Yes. Which has been denied to all of these non-white families for generations. And so one of the things in one of the episodes that they keep saying, keep coming back to is like, I just feel like I can't get ahead. I can never get ahead no matter how hard I work. And that this really feels like kind of a map of that. Oh, yeah. One of the things that's interesting is that some of these used very broad language. So like the one, the language that I shared from View Ridge or from Ennis Arden rather essentially said like only white people but some would enumerate who specifically was excluded. Okay, um, I was going to ask how they define white people. Yeah, so some might say you can only anybody who's white or caucasian they're the only people that can live that can live on this property or live in this home. Others said no Ethiopians, which oh. at the time meant anybody from sub-Saharan Africa. Others would say no Hebrews, which was a way to discriminate against Jews. Uh, There was like one very disturbing racial restrictive covenant that said it was only for people who were descended from Aryans. And that was in 1948. So post-World War II. God. Uh, (laughs) Depending on kind of whatever the white fear was around who Mm -hmm. they felt could be encroaching on their property, they could be very specific about who was being ex- excluded. There's a, a couple of key dates um, that are kind of instrumental in kind of understanding this. So I learned about a Supreme co- Court decision. Hannah, I hope you're proud of me. In 1948, the Supreme Court reversed a ruling that they had made in 1926. In 1926, they reinforced the legality of these Uh, of these racial restrictive covenants and said, yep, these racial restrictive covenants can be enforced. And furthermore, they will be with the land forever. 
Um, Come on. (laughs) uh, So that was a decision they made in 1926. In 1948, they said, you know what? Actually, these can't be enforced by the state. They didn't say they were illegal, but they said they were unenforceable. But they essentially could continue to function as like a social as a social contract. And so property owners could continue to add them onto deeds. They could continue to advertise for them, but they couldn't legally be enforceable to prevent people from from living in in the homes. And then in 1964 in Seattle was again when they tried to actually have an ordinance passed for the city that they wouldn't restrict land, uh, they wouldn't restrict property based on race. And it lost almost two to one. And I'm going to send you an advertisement that ran in the two biggest newspapers in Seattle. Oh, yikes. Oh, no. Okay. So the headline is says don't let them kick away your rights oh oh no um and then there's an image of a a leg with a shoe that says seattle housing ordinance and it's kicking over a stack of books and the books are labeled things like freedom of religion academic freedoms freedom of speech u.s constitution this could run today in like a ron DeSantis ad isn't that terrifying that this could run again today yes I hate it. Uh, Vote against the housing ordinance Tuesday, March 10th. I mean, freedom of choice. Yeah, this this could easily run today. The Seattle housing ordinance destroys your freedom of choice, robs you of your constitutionally guaranteed private property rights, prevents you from obtaining due process of law. And this was like a very effective campaign against against yeah. passing the legislation 50,000 voters voted to remove the racially restrictive covenants to not discriminate on the basis of race and 115,000 people voted to maintain that right to discriminate essentially Ugh. and then one thing that people that were that were pro Seattle housing ordinance so they were pro-ending these discriminatory practices, one of the things they said was, but but our rights are being infringed on. You're not letting us sell our property to right. who we want to sell our property to. Right, right. And that was that was just like not a compelling argument because it, it wasn't actually ever about freedom of choice. Right. No, of course because not. Because it's never about freedom of choice. And then in 1968, the Equal Housing Law was signed into action, um, and this was actually discriminatory and illegal practice to to refuse to sell on the basis of race. Um, yes, um, because it obviously is. <laughs> and like a lot of things, kind of like exactly what you were talking about with your case study, it didn't immediately end the dehumanization of people and right. inhumane practice. It force the dehumanization and the inhumane practice to get a little craftier. There is still discrimination in Seattle today. I read an article about it that looks at racialized discourse in Seattle rental ads from 2017 and 2018. <gasps> like it still what? exists, but it's 
It's subtler, right? It's sneakier. It's yeah. sneakier. It's talking so about- So how does, what does it look like now? So what it looks like now is in white neighborhoods, you might you might advertise that it's like a safe, walkable neighborhood that has like a oh, great uh-huh. community. And yeah. in a predominantly black neighborhood, you might really highlight the fact that there's 24-hour security or that that there's like public transportation to get you out of that neighborhood. Uh, so predominantly white neighborhoods will emphasize the community within the neighborhood and predominantly black neighborhoods will emphasize here's how you can leave the community. Wow. Yeah. I used to live in D.C. and I worked in Georgetown, which is one of the it's like a wealthier neighborhood that's mostly populated by white white folks in the mm-hmm. university, which is also mostly white folks. And it's just a real pain in the buns to get there. The subway doesn't stop there because they don't want the riffraff visiting Georgetown. Yeah. I'm sure this like that kind of thing exists everywhere or in like most cities and suburbs. Yeah. And it also exists in like where people put freeways. Like what yeah. were the parts oh, of the city? Yeah. Like what were the parts of the city that you were trying to divide from one another? Yeah, or the disposable parts of the city. That is one one thing that I thought I might um, focusing on when we decided to talk about this, all the stories of like when when they install the the highways, like what communities are they are they dividing? What communities are they destroying? And that is one of the things that the reparations committee is looking at, like the cer- certain communities that ha- that they're going to invest in and try to rejuvenate. Because like when they put the highways in, these like homes and stores and neighborhoods just were were destroyed. They were erased from the map. Ready for some potentially good news on that subject of reparations? I guess. I'm okay. still kind of mad. Well, I, you should be mad. I think always be mad because there's a part of like, and I think 1619 Project does like a good job of hitting on this that like I think of the story of that that man who was a was a youth protester who oh yeah quit he dropped out of college so that he could protest for the civil rights movement and the way he was treated when he was imprisoned Hannah Nicole Jones is like crying and she's like I'm so sorry that that happened to you I think that's like the part of reparations that the 1619 project does like a great job of discussing is like reparations is Almost we talk about it as like the end point, but reparations is like the starting point oh, to yeah. heal the damage. And he was saying too in that interview, like, I'm not I'm not sorry I did it because we we did some of the hard stuff so that some of the easier stuff would come for you. Mm-hmm. But we our generation is still gonna have to do that and the next generation is also still gonna have to do it. I think about a story my my brother told me about Capitol Hill, right? This this neighborhood that's like the heart of the queer community in Seattle. It also had a campaign, a petition campaign to exclude non-white people from living there. And uh, several years ago, there was a group, I think, called Black, Black Brunch that were going to brunch restaurants and different wealthier Seattle neighborhoods and basically doing like protests within the blunt brunch where they spread out across the room and did like a 
a unified statement about what they were doing there and and why they were there. And it was a statement against continued systems of like systemic inequality and racism in Seattle and trying to bring attention to that. Mm-hmm. And my brother just shared like how like people were like, man, we're just trying to like eat our brunch. And I think somebody, I remember him telling me like, why are you doing this in Capitol Hill? Right? Like Capitol Hill doesn't have this problem. Right. Yeah. And it's like, look at we, your like we record. We aren't the problem. Okay. Some good news. Some good news. Okay. Yes. Yes. So a week ago, the Washington State Legislature passed a law called HB 1474. And HB 1474 is an act relating to creating the Covenant Home Ownership Account and program to address the history of housing discrimination due to racially restrictive real estate covenants in Washington state. So essentially what it's doing is it's creating a fund that is strictly for people who, as I understand it, who if they've lived in Seattle since 1968, which isn't that long ago, but was a long time ago, if you are a descendant of somebody who has been in Seattle since 1968 or who was who at the time would have been barred from purchasing property. So mm-hmm. if you are if your grandparent would have been prevented from purchasing property, then you can benefit from this fund. Um, and I think also it's if you having if you would have lived in Seattle in 1968 and you would have been prevented from purchasing housing, then you have access to this fund. So this hey, is that's for, great for for Black residents. This is for Jewish residents. Um, uh, uh-huh. For Latinx communities, they have access to this fund. It's a low interest, a very low interest or no interest down payment loan to help you purchase property. Wow, that's great. Um, So this is not going to be in effect until 2024, but it was sponsored by 44 members of the House of Representatives. Um, When it came out of committee, it was voted against by every Republican in the state Washington and Washington state legislature. Um, These are the people who voted in those dumb votes 60 years ago. It's like the same thing. It's the same people. Yeah. Um, I don't know if some Republicans switched their votes uh, when it actually came up for a vote. I didn't check that. And it targets compensation in the form of down payment loans to families that were excluded from equal housing opportunities in the years prior to the 1960 Fair Housing Act. So that's kind of like something we didn't touch on was like redlining and Mm -hmm. these GI bills that were supposed to allow veterans to purchase homes. How how non-white veterans were often excluded from them. Um, this is an attempt to try to to address some of that. It's not perfect legislation, right? Like they acknowledge that from the outset. It's not going to like undo anything that has been done to people that were excluded from building this generational wealth. But it's an attempt. It's like a starting point for reparations. And I think that's really, I think that's really positive. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> um, I mean, I I like your description of it. I would have to read the text to make. <laughs> yeah, I we can link that on our website because I have um I have the full bill, the full text of the bill, which is about ten pages, and then like mm. a two sheeter 
that the Washington state legislature, that those were that were in support of it put together to explain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to read it. I want to read it on the website. And that is my that is my 1619 case study. Um, this is so interesting. And it's also it's really got me thinking about like, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, just lightly scratching the surface of the history of my hometown, I was like, oh, there it is. There's the racism. Yeah, it didn't take I, long. I had to, yeah, I just like unlocked my front door and I was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> I found the racism. And there's definitely going to be like so much more, like not just in the history. There's still like it's still still going on now. It was going on the whole time. And uh, the good news is <laughs> the good news is the bad news is that there's probably stories like this for every single community in America. The opportunity to I am I am framing this so weirdly. It's bad, guys. The opportunity to learn about this shit show of American history is just like it's just everywhere. And so I would really encourage you, listener, to uh, unlock your front door and see what racism there is out there and and to tell us about it, because I'm genuinely curious to know. I think we have listeners all over the country and maybe even other countries. I bet you have racism too, Germany. You know what you did. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to a weird place. Just calling out the entire country of Germany. I'm yeah, I like it. And one thing is that these these continued propaganda campaigns against critical race theory, against the 1619 project. They are predicated on the idea that we don't know what happened in our own history. And so the way that we can help combat that, it, and it's also predicated on the idea of that idea of this happened so long ago, and we don't need to worry about it because it happened so long ago. The more people that take a look and like open that front door and look at the history up close, it shatters that myth. And I think it's also important to remind ourselves that we are still benefiting from these discriminations white white folks <laughs> that this isn't something that happened a long time ago and it's over and we get to say well that has nothing to do with me like the city of Asheville quadrupled in size within a decade of the building of that tunnel that i referred to the city of Asheville basically wouldn't exist without without that tunnel, and the tunnel doesn't exist without incarcerated labor. Man. And that is a thing that is still active. Whether whether or not we remember it, it's still there. It's still true. And so now this is a part of my history that the place where I grew up wouldn't wouldn't really exist the way I know it without that. I think that's the perfect note to end on. So I think we should just end it there and tell our listeners that much like what Hannah said, we would love to hear from you. What are the stories of the places where you live? Uh, what are these stories that reveal themselves when you just lightly scratch the surface? Um, you can get involved by tweeting at us or commenting on this episode's post on Instagram. In both places, we are at WellHearPod. You can also email us at wellhearpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to go to wherever you get your podcasts and click that. It's bad, guys. It's all bad, which you might uh, click that. It's bad button, which you might know as a follow button. And until next time.
I'm Suzanne, and I still think the 1619 Project is good, actually. And I'm Hannah, and I'm glad Nicole Hannah-Jones finally got tenure at Howard University, where she now teaches. And well, here we are. I see a mother there, a lover and a child. I know a war will come and take away their lives. Maybe.